with the greatest of all purposes. He had a work to do that was assigned to him from the Father. And last week we looked at how he had this great agenda, this great purpose, this great work to do that the Father had sent him to do. And there is no greater work than what the Father sends anyone to do. And what is significant is that Jesus did not have to be coerced to do this. Jesus didn't find it some external obligation that he was forced to do. Jesus' heart was bound up to the work that the Father had given him to do. He was urgent about this work. He was passionate about it. He was obsessed with it. And we heard that in verse 4 last week. We read, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He was driven by the work he had to do. And so we wonder, how are we to understand this great work that Jesus came to do? And the only way we can understand it fully is if we understand the unique identity of Jesus as the light. And that's how Jesus is presenting himself as the light. And when we understand what it means that he's the light, we will understand the works that he came to do. It is his character. It is who he is. He is the light. And that's why we understand this great work that the Father sent him to do, that he was passionate to do, that only he could do, and that we need more than anything the great saving work that Jesus came to do. And I want to summarize, as we did last week, just to remind you one way we can summarize what these works are. You could summarize his works in two different um, statements. He came to speak the truth. The truth that leads us to the Father. In that sense, he is the light. He shines the light in this dark world, speaking the truth, illuminating the way to the Father. But that's not the totality of what it means that he is the light. He also came to open up our eyes so that we could see this truth about the way to the Father, and that we could see the goodness of it and the glory of it so that we might be saved, so that the blind may see. And that summarizes, really succinctly, the mission that he came to accomplish and the work he came to do as the light of the world. And last week we saw Jesus illustrate or picture for us, however you want to say that, um, through the external healing of the blind man, this great work, this great saving work that he came to do in verses 1 through 12. You know, every miracle is saying something about Jesus and his saving purpose that he came to do. Kind of an illustration or a picture. And uh, how much more did we say the blind being made to see pictures, the saving work that Jesus came to do? Amazing picture. And today what we're going to see is that there are two contrasting responses to the work of light that Jesus came to bring. When the light invades this world, just as we saw with the healing of this blind man, there are two possible responses that come as a result. 
You either receive the light gradually, slowly, sometimes fully embracing it immediately because you're given eyes to see, or you reject the light. Either you blast God or you worship God. Those are the two responses to the light, and there's always those two responses that take place every time we see the light of Christ shining into this dark world. And so I want to ask you, what is your response to the light? I want to call you to respond to the light with worship today. Nothing less than eternity is at stake in our response to the light. Now I said there are two possible contrasting responses to Jesus' work as the light of the world that people might have. And we see these two responses gradually developing through a series of interviews, you might say, that are intended to investigate the work of Jesus in healing this blind man. And we see this in verses 13 through 38. And the first investigation involves the religious leaders with the healed man in verses 13 through 17. Now we're going to walk right through this together. And the neighbors of the man who are formerly blind want advice. Now they see this man who is blind who can now see, and they want to go to their religious leaders, and they want to ask them, what should we do about this? What do you think about this? Right? And so that's what they do in verse 13. And we are told some new information in verse 14 that is very helpful to understand what's going to happen. So this new information is going to blow everything up. And what we're told is that this healing took place on the Sabbath. And let me just tell you, this didn't happen accidentally. Jesus did this on purpose. He is trying to blow things up. <laughs> he is exposing people's hearts. And so he did this on purpose so that it would reveal the hearts, particularly of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. So the religious leaders ask the man how he received his sight. And the man replies by explaining exactly what Jesus did for him. <laughs> Notice the simplicity. The simplicity of a testimony of what God did. He put mud on my eyes. I washed and now I see. That's it. A miracle. And that's what salvation is, isn't it? It's a miracle of God by which we can see by faith the glory and the goodness and the greatness of our Savior. That was verse 15. So in verse 16, the first part of it, the investigating Pharisees are divided in their response to Jesus in his healing. They're divided. On one side, they're saying, how could he be from God if he breaks the Sabbath? Imagine God breaking the law, right? And so some of them are saying, he cannot be from God. There's no way because of his actions in breaking the Sabbath. And I, I just find it interesting, how in the world did they think what Jesus did was breaking the Sabbath? And apparently... The word used for mud or clay here is the same word used for dough. And also apparently the kneading of dough was something that was prohibited on the Sabbath. 
a violation of the Sabbath according to their rules that they had made up. Right? Makes a lot of sense. Just kidding. This means when Jesus made mud with his saliva, they considered it kneading, kneading dough. So they saw Jesus as breaking the law by kneading dough on the Sabbath. So were they right? Did Jesus break the law? Was he not from God? Well, if they were correct in their understanding of Jesus' works, then they would be right that Jesus was not from God. But there's the problem, isn't it? They were not right. They did not understand the law. They had made up their own rules because they wanted to be in charge and didn't want God to be in charge. So why did Jesus have to do it this way, with mud on the Sabbath? In order to expose the Pharisees' faulty views of Jesus and the work that he came to do. Jesus is exposing their blindness and their hypocrisy by their response to his work. Jesus is the light of the world. He has come. And when he comes, he exposes just naturally by living and doing the works he's called to do, the wickedness of men's hearts. He makes them angry because of what he does, because they hate the light. And it's exposed through their response. And their response showed that they did not like to think of Jesus as being Lord of the Sabbath. They rather loved their own rules that they made up. Do you see that? They didn't love Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. The response also showed that they missed the whole point of the Sabbath law. You see, the whole point of the Sabbath was to bring healing through rest, was to show us that we need God, we need Him, we're dependent on Him. And He gives us healing through the rest that He brings to us. And so here was Jesus showing the whole point of the Sabbath by healing this man, and they did not love God, and so they got angry at Jesus when they saw His light shining into this world. Their actions showed that they were quite blind in reality. So in verse 16, the second half, there's another side of the group that is temporarily sympathetic towards Jesus. They wonder, how could someone possibly not be from God and do such works as he did? And so not being able to come to a clear decision, they asked the healed man, what he thinks about the man who healed him. And the blind man who's just beginning to see Jesus begins to speak the truth. If even it's the beginning, <laughs> he's beginning to get it. Not there yet, but he's starting. And he calls him a prophet, doesn't he? He says he is a prophet. But notice, this is good. He's going in the right direction. He's not there yet, but he's going in the right direction. You can see that he has been given eyes in contrast to the Pharisees. This leads us to the second investigation into the works of Jesus. And this time the religious leaders investigate the blind man's parents in verses 18 through 23. Who better than the parents to identify if this was truly the one who healed him and to ask, how did this happen? And that's exactly what they asked them in verses 
18 through 19. How does he now see? Well, let's ask the parents. And his parents respond by confirming that, yes, this is my son. But, but they are very conflicted with the second part of that question. They know how he could see, but they don't want to say it. And so they throw their son under the bus, don't they? <laughs> really nice thing to do. And they say, you can ask him. He is of age. Ask him what happened. Right? And we're told why they did this. Because they were fearful of being kicked out of the synagogue. They didn't want to lose their religious position in the sight of men. They were fearful of what men thought. And really, this tells us something important here. I think the point of this is to express or expand upon or magnify the courage of this man. When this man brings, bears witness and testifies and worships Jesus, his worship will be that much more courageous and profound because of what's at stake. At this point, the religious leaders are unified in their agreement against Jesus and are unsatisfied with how things are going. The light is shining into this moment, and they are getting really upset and really concerned. So they decide to have a second investigation into the healing work of Jesus with a blind man in verses 24 through 34. They call on the blind man in God's name, meaning speak the truth, right? They're not saying glorify God in the sense of praise him. They're saying speak the truth, meaning basically we're going to the highest authority possible, just as you would in a court of law, and testify what we want you to say, <laughs> that this man is a sinner. In verse 24. See, they are determined what the truth is already. And if he doesn't agree with them, they'll kick him out of the synagogue. But notice, all that the blind man knows, which isn't much, is his testimony. All he knows is that he can see. <laughs> that he can see, that he has eyes to see where, as before he was blind. And that's what he says in verse 25. Basically, I don't know much of anything, but I know more than you do. No, he doesn't say that. But it's true. <laughs> I was blind and now I can see. You know, we might not be able to explain a whole lot, but we always should be able to give our testimony of what he has done for me. That he has given me sight. That I can see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That he is the only way to come to the Father. That in him is glory. That is our testimony, and he has opened our eyes to see this. And we can tell others that I can see what I never could see before. That when I see Jesus, I see the purpose for which I was created, to behold and worship our God through seeing his glory displayed through Jesus Christ. And there's something powerful about such a personal testimony. And through our testimony, we can give the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just like for this man, I think this is very important for us to understand, is that our testimonies should be obvious and visible. You know, there was no doubting that this man could see, right? Anybody who looked at him would say, hey, he can see. He wasn't seeing, now he can see. Well, it should be obvious when people see us that we see glory in Jesus Christ. 
It should be obvious that we are thankful to God. It should be obvious that we proclaim one name. Because that's what it means to see, isn't it? That our lives are all about Jesus and his glory and his greatness. If that is not true of us, then maybe we can't see. But that should be the truth of our lives. And we should be growing in that way to magnify and exalt and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It should be obvious in our lives that we see glory in Jesus more than anything else. And that we praise him. It should be undeniable that we have a testimony. That something's different about us. And this is every Christian's testimony, isn't it? John Newton wrote these words in Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. What a testimony. The only option they have, meaning the religious leader, is to press him again with the same question they asked before, hoping for a more favorable answer. This is really futility, isn't it? What did, you do? what did he do? How did he open your eyes? In verse 26. And at this point, the blind man, who now could see, is beginning to catch on to the futility of what is happening here. He realizes the false intentions of the religious leaders, that they are not interested in the truth. So he responds with a little sarcasm. <laughs> you could call it inspired sarcasm, right? In verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like driving around the same course in your car, expecting to come to a different location at the end of it, right? It's futile. It's not going to bring you anywhere else. And he realizes that they're just looking for their own answer that they want to hear. They don't care about what he has to say. They don't care about the truth. And so the blind man, what I want you to notice here is the courage of this man. What does the Bible say? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And he doesn't understand that yet. But he is courageous for the truth. And we see that he is beginning to see. He is seeing the contrast of hypocrisy and the truth. And his boldness and courage is beginning to come out. Because God has given him eyes to see. Notice the hostility in the religious leader's response. They make fun of him. They claim, hey, we are disciples of Moses, but you are disciples of this man who no one even knows where he comes from. Which is ironic because Jesus has just said that if they believed Moses, they would believe him. But they use it against the blind man, as if they were better off than he was, more spiritual than he was, which is just the opposite. And so they ridicule him. They put him down. They are getting nowhere, you might say. And it's really bothering them to the core. They're becoming more angry and more angry. And that's what... That's what the darkness does when the light shines brighter and brighter, doesn't it? It becomes more angry and more angry. It runs or it fights against the truth. It can do no other. And at this point, they're fighting because they have so much at stake if the truth wins. At this point, the blind man, at great cost to himself, courageously stands up and defends himself. 
or defends Jesus, I should say, the truth, claiming that he was, that if he was not from God, he could not do such things as he was doing in verses 30 through 33. And you can see how he is becoming less ashamed and less ashamed, more bold, more courageous, as the truth is becoming more and more clear to him, as his eyes are opening up more and more to the truth. You see, things are beginning to make sense to him. You see, what he says here is not really special. It just isn't. This is common sense. What this man is saying is common sense. What is truly remarkable is the unbelief of the religious leaders. They are making nonsense. And by the way, the world is full of that nonsense, isn't it? The world is full of nonsense. How many people cave in to the popular majority out of fear of people? But that makes no sense. There's nothing to that. The truth is what makes sense. And that's what this guy, this man is beginning to understand. With that, they revile him for being a sinner and daring to try to teach them (laughs) who they claimed were not sinners and they cast him out of the synagogue. How do you know they are blind? How do you know these people are blind? By the fact that they see the glory of God shining in the works that he has done right before them and they become enraged. They become angry. They don't like it. And the more the light shines, the more enraged they become. And here we see the height of their anger expressed and their casting out of the man who could actually see. Isn't this ironic? What keeps you out of the worship center is speaking the truth. There's something ironic about that, isn't there? In fact, there are some churches where it would be be considered a privilege if they cast you out of them. There are some churches where I hope if you went to that they would cast you out of it because of the light of the truth that you love and that you would shine wherever you went. And that's what happens to this man. And here we see that this man is willing to pay the price for following Jesus. There's one more investigation, and this time Jesus investigates the blind man who could now see in verses 35 through 37. Jesus questions him about his spiritual sight. He asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? And notice that that's what Jesus is really concerned about. He's asking him, do you see? (laughs) Do you have eyes to see? And he's looking for a confession. In verse 35. And what's interesting here, and something I think I don't want to just pass right by, is if you remember at the very beginning, who was it who saw the blind man? Was it the blind man who saw Jesus coming? No. He couldn't see anything. Jesus, it mentions at the very beginning, saw the blind man. And that's the way salvation works, isn't it? Jesus noticed him first. And notice who goes to the blind man after he can see. Jesus goes to him. Jesus is taking the initiative here. After hearing that he was kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus goes to him. Jesus seeks him and finds him. There is no other way around. It must be Jesus. And actually, we'll see this in the next chapter, that this is what characterized the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. 
and they will follow me. Jesus asked him the most important question anyone can ask. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now he's not asking if he believes that the Son of Man exists. Rather he's asking, do you believe, do you trust, do you put your confidence in the Son of Man? And that's what Jesus is concerned about. That's what matters in the grand scheme of things. It's really simple, isn't it? The religious leaders knew a lot more than this man did. But they knew nothing of any eternal significance. And this man is about to know everything of eternal significance. When Jesus reveals that he is the Son of Man, the man who can see responds properly with faith. Notice he can see, so he responds to the truth with faith by worshiping Jesus. Because that's what faith looks like. When we see Jesus for who he is and his glory and his excellence and his greatness, the outward expression of that is worship. And that's what we see here in verse 36. And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He falls down and worships Jesus. And Jesus accepts it and doesn't turn him away. And notice the healed man continually displays the right response. As if he can see. As the light is revealed to him, he shows that he has eyes to see. That his eyes have been opened. Who is the Son of Man? That's the right question to ask. He's not ashamed to ask that. As if he knows that he can't see fully and he needs help, he needs guidance from Jesus. That's what it means to see. I don't know the way. I don't know how to be saved. I don't know how to get myself into a right relationship with God. I can't do it myself. I'm blind. He recognizes it in spiritual matters and he recognizes Jesus as the light. He sees that. And so he says, show me who he is. That's the right response of someone who can see. He wants to see. And Jesus brings him to faith by revealing himself to him. And that's what happens every time, isn't it? This is how Jesus draws worship out of the heart of those whom he has opened their eyes to see. The more of Jesus that's revealed to someone who can see, the more they express their faith with worship. So what does this man do? He worships. He falls down before him. And this is the only right response to the revelation of Jesus. It is the only response of someone who can see. And believing and worship always go hand in hand. As I said, worship is the outward expression of inward faith. To believe in Jesus is to see the truth of his glory. You can't see Jesus and not see the goodness and the glory of who he is. And you don't have faith if you don't see his glory and his goodness. And worship is the expression of that seeing. And if you believe in Jesus, you will worship him. That's the outflow of that. So what Jesus does here is a far greater miracle than the physical healing of the blind man. Jesus does the eternally significant work of healing this man. And that's what he has come to do, isn't he? To open the eyes of the blind and to show them the truth of who Jesus is. And to bring salvation. That's what the light does. What about you? What is your response to Jesus? Is it worship? I'm not saying we always feel like it, but we believe it's true. We believe he is good. We believe he is glorious, even when we can't feel it. 
Do you see the contrast between the blind man and the Pharisees respond to the light? One, ex- ex- one we see a gradual reception of the light as it is revealed, a need and a desire for the light. The other rejects the light. Their vision is inadequate. They're self-assured. They think they know the way, but they don't. They don't humble themselves. They're blind. And I want you to recognize that both of these contrasting responses come from the same observation of the light. They both saw the same light. They both saw the work that Jesus was doing. And this is what happens in real life. When we see the revelation of Jesus Christ and his work and what he's done on the cross and his greatness and his glory, we see one of these two responses are always the outcome. And oftentimes they come from the most unlikely sources. The religious leaders are blind. The ones who are supposed to know, supposed to see are blind. And this man who is blind can see. What direction are you going in? Are you going in the direction of worship as you grow and understand who Jesus is through the revelation of his word? Or are you gradually going in the direction of blaspheme and rejection? So should we be surprised by their responses? Jesus explains how these contrasting responses are exactly what he came to bring about through his work as the light. Neither of these responses are surprising because of what Jesus came to do as a light in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. When he says, I have come, he's saying, This is my mission, this is my purpose for coming into this world. Now, when Jesus says, I have come for judgment, it should be kind of surprising to us at first, right? Because Jesus, it sounds like, has just said the opposite. But that's just a perceived problem. It's not really a problem. But let me read that verse where he said he didn't come for judgment. In John 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn. It's, it's a variation of judgment there. The world. And then in 12, verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And when Jesus says that, he's saying that my first indirect purpose for coming was not judgment, but to bring salvation. He came to save. That was his priority when he came. That you might believe, that he might be doing the works of God that would bring about salvation for his people. So what does Jesus mean by saying that he has come for judgment? How are we to understand this and make sense of it? Well, his saving work that he came to do would naturally divide humanity between those who think they need the light, those who can see by realizing they are blind, and those who can't see and think they can see and are under God's judgment. Which means a natural result of light will be judgment for those who refuse it. He came to save, but those who refuse will face judgment. You see, light has a dividing effect. It brings judgment to humanity. It divides humanity. This means that when he works as a light, by being the truth, speaking the truth, doing the truth, that this light would automatically work both to save and expose the judgment on those who refuse the light. Let me give you an example. What happens at night 
when you shine a flashlight into the darkness. Now you probably notice that some bugs will come screaming, flying over to the light. They just love the light. And you'll also find that animals that will scurry away, will run away <laughs> because of the light, because they hate the light and they don't want to be seen. That's kind of what's going on here. And that's what we read about in John 3, verse 19 through 21. Some will hate the light, and some will run to the light, that it may be seen that what has been done has been done by God. Or what happens, and this might be a little clear, what happens when you go to war? Uh, There's a people that need to be delivered, right? There's a people that need to be delivered. Well, when you go to war to deliver a people, there's going to be some people that are conquered. You're going to bring weapons with you, right? And there's going to be some people who are going to rejoice. They're going to be saved. And other people are going to be conquered by that saving work that he comes to do. This means those who reject the revelation of Jesus, thinking that they can see on their own, are really the blind ones. They regard their own illumination as sufficient, and there is no cure for those who will not receive the cure that Jesus came to bring. There is no hope for those who reject the truth and the light of the gospel. This means those who receive the revelation of Jesus, knowing that they cannot see on their own, are those who can really see. So that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those who think they see may become blind. So what does this mean for all those who refuse the light? Well, what it means is they are guilty, doesn't it? Jesus confirms that all who reject the light are guilty in verse 40 through 41. So they ask Jesus in a sarcastic way, are you saying we're blind, Jesus? And they are fully aware of what Jesus is going to say. In fact, they're expecting Jesus to say, yes, you are blind. You're very blind. But Jesus doesn't say that at first. Jesus explains that there's a type of blindness that is guiltless, right? If Jesus had not come to them with the light, they would not have been guilty in that sense of rejecting that light. Not that they wouldn't have been guilty in general, but they wouldn't have been guilty in that sense of rejecting the light. They would have had blind ignorance of that light. But that wasn't their problem, wasn't it? But he says that in your situation, your type of blindness, they see what's going on, but they have closed their eyes to the truth by claiming that they can see already. And that's willful blindness. They are guilty, and their guilt remains. The problem is that they're unwilling to come to the truth when they see it. So therefore, they are guilty. Whoever resists the uncovering of sin and the truth of the gospel that it brings remains under the judgment of God. They are already guilty and remain guilty. This is not an innocent blindness, but a guilty blindness. So here's my question for you as we conclude. Do you see Jesus by faith today? And you might wonder, how do I know if I do or not? And one way to answer that is, do you worship Jesus? If you have tasted that the Lord is good, if you have seen him not as mere facts, but as God's manifestation of his goodness in its fullness, 
You will worship him by expressing that goodness. You will be thankful. You will bow to him. You will delight in him. You will want to know him. You will sing praises to him. (laughs) That's what faith looks like. And you will love him and love others. Because that's what faith does. Faith tastes the goodness of Jesus Christ and responds with expressing that goodness through worship. If you have eyes to see, the more you look at Jesus, the more you will worship. Worship that honors God is born from such eyes of faith that see him as good. Or, do you blaspheme Jesus? And how do you know if you blaspheme Jesus? Well, the answer is, if you do not see Jesus as God's goodness, but rather see other things as greater and as life-giving than the goodness of Jesus. If that is what characterizes your life, if you know nothing of the goodness of Jesus, if he is not your satisfying goodness, if worship is non-existent, then you are in the depths of blindness. And Jesus is a threat to your life. Or you think he is. And that's what it means to be blind. So how do we become a people who are brave and not ashamed? How do we become a people who worship with all of our existence and with all of our lives? Ask Jesus to open your eyes and then look at him in his word. Gaze at him, stare at him, keep looking at him and saying, Jesus, open my eyes, I want to see you. And you know what? You will worship him and glorify him and you will find greater joy in him at the same time. Isn't that a great deal? Because worship and our joy go together. Isaiah 50, verse 10 through 11. I'll close with those verses, and they really summarize this passage very well. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Notice what he says about those people. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have for my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Let's pray. Dear Father, there is only one light. There is only one light in this world. And Father, even as your word was preached today, it was dividing. It was a dividing word. For some, they are feeling their condemnation. For others, they are experiencing the joy of seeing their Savior who has brought eternal life to them. And their hearts are rejoicing in that goodness. And their worship is growing. Lord, I pray that you would increase our joy. Increase our delight in you. Help us to see what it means that you are our Savior. Lord, may we speak more about you. May we rejoice more deeper and more louder. May we give thanks to you. May we love you as you so rightly deserve. 
And may it be the joy of our hearts to do so because we see our Savior, because we have eyes to see you. And I pray for those who are blind. I pray for those who cannot see the goodness of the gospel. I pray that even now you would open their eyes. I pray that you bring great conviction to their hearts. And I pray that those who are blind would be able to see and that they too would rejoice in you as their Savior today. Lord, you said there is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Lord, humble us today. And may we proclaim your goodness because we see it in your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.